we are into Acts 5. Uh, we've got fakers who fear to join them, believers who are buying in, and quite frankly, actually at this point, the healings, the healings are hilarious. Like you imagine being Peter and you walk along and your shadow touches someone and they become healed. Like this is, this is really crazy. Uh, and the people of Jerusalem love this. And in fact, I reckon if I was an apostle, this could easily go to my head. Don't you think? Like the amount of sheer crazy that's going on. And yet you look at their responses to things and like Peter, who's known for crazy over-the-top responses, he is just so even. Isn't everything just so factual and calm about him? Uh, the apostles seem to be so engaged with God, so convinced of Jesus' resurrection, so empowered by the Spirit, that the craziness of it all in that 5.12 to 5.16 section, just, it's not what they're thinking about. They're just so hooked on God. This new thing of the Holy Spirit uniting them together with him. Now, the Sadducees, these guys are the religious sect that control the temple, the high priest, the priest, those guys. Um, they, are, they are the sort of the temple authority. So when you see those terms, they're not quite, but almost interchangeable. Um, now, there's, they're different from the Pharisees. Pharisees, they, pre they preach a, a strict, you, you think, when you think of a Pharisee, you think of what? Yeah, legalistic. I think rules. That, that, so, yeah. so these are the strict guys. They, they're the stay away from those filthy Gentiles. And they're, they're disgusting excesses. We can wait for our rewards in the next life because they believe in the resurrection. Uh, whereas the Sadducees don't really believe in the resurrection, so they're looking for the blessing now. So they're quite happy to cozy up to the Romans and get the good stuff from being in with the powers. Right? Which means, unlike Jesus' disciples, the people of Jerusalem who actually can see the way that that Greek, Greco-Roman morality, the influence that that's having on their public life and the, the, the defilement, as they would think of it, as of their temple, that they actually don't like the Sadducees so much. Evidence is that the Sadducees weren't well thought of. So you've got the people, the, sorry, you've got the, the believers in the temple healing people, being very well thought of by all the people, and the Sadducees who aren't, and they get jealous. They, they can sense the threat that this is here. And so they arrest the apostles. All, all 12, I'm guessing. In my head, for some reason, I always had it that that was Peter and John both times, but this, this seems to be all 12, right? Uh, one thing you can't accuse the Sadducees of, by the way, is having a poor work-life balance. This is the second time that they arrest them and then just go, ah, oh, we're going to knock off for the night, go to bed, <laughs> and then we'll, we'll sort that out in the morning. So they've, they've got a really good sense of, you know, uh, boundaries. Uh, and, and when Jesus then sends this angel, when the Sadducees are asleep, who opens the doors, they just stroll on out. There's no sense of struggle. They just walk on out. Now, what was the purpose of that? Why did Jesus send that angel? Why did he do that? Well, I suspect it's because these instructions that he delivers, that I think that they might be the hint. Tomorrow, he says, go back and keep on doing what got you arrested. Ah, yeah, we need to get you out of jail so that you can go back to exactly the same spot and do the same thing again so you get arrested again. You see, you, see, you, can, you can see here that it's strategically not a genius move. <laughs> Probably not the stupidity of the angel, though. Probably more Jesus. Not being desperate to get them out of jail. He wants to make a point. So at dawn, they do it. Straight back in, start telling everyone in the temple about the message of life. 
an able to defeat death life, an able to defeat death message, a, a I can't be stopped by human muscle flexing and by you trying to get your power back because it looks like I'm coming up in the popularity stakes. You Sadducees cannot stop this message of Jesus, that kind of power life. Now, this, in this moment, the high priest has actually already called together the council. Uh, did you notice the word the, the high council? Not just the temple council. This is the whole council of all the people. This is the most representative, authoritative religious body that Jerusalem can muster, muster together. You've got Pharisees, Sadducees, I assume, zealots. Uh, every sect of Judaism except for the Christians. And rather embarrassingly, the high priest who appears to have called a meeting to bring along the Christians can't produce any. So in one sense, maybe a meeting that should have been an email. Uh, and, and so the captain of the temple guards, he, he starts freaking out about this, but he also starts thinking forwards. He actually says, he actually starts thinking, how is this going to end? That's sort of like a, almost, but that end word, it's almost it's like a pun. It's like that word of, how's it, what's the purpose of this? Where is this going to get to? What, how's this going to play out? What is, the, what is the telos of this, the end point of all this? And actually, it's where we actually get to. See, word comes that the apostles are preaching in the temple again. So, he and his men go and collect them. But not by force. And you read that and you think, hold on, maybe they're starting to get it. They're starting to get that this God is powerful. They've heard about the Ananias and Sapphira thing, that this God is to be feared. But actually, no, <laughs> if you read on the next verse, no, they're not. They're not scared of God. They haven't got a fear of God in this. I feared that the people would stone them. An appearance of fearing God, but it's really actually fear of men. And that's a thought to ponder in your heart, isn't it? Let that sink in. A thought to pon- uh, an appearance of fearing God, but really something that's actually a fear of men. Now, the, the high priest gets them in, eventually they're there, and he speaks a, a sentence spoken with all the entitlement of a man who expects that he should be obeyed. We strictly charge you not to speak in this name. Like it's, it's, that's, that's the thing that's unfathomable for him. That I, I said this should happen, it hasn't happened. This guy may not be a father, I'm not, it's just strange. It's like, and the apostles answer, we must obey God rather than men. And that's just a sentence, isn't it? Like there's something there. We must obey God rather than men. Uh, uh, it almost just seems so obvious and dumb, and yet it's, actually super powerful. Put an eye on it. I must obey God rather than men. Put your name on it. Pete must obey God rather than men. Pete must obey God rather than the preferences of women. Pete must obey God and not concern himself with the expectations of men. Pete, you have got to attend to God's instructions, not the subtly implied expectations of any person. We've got no business putting aside God's priorities for, my li- for our lives to treat somebody else's expectations of us as superior to that. We must obey God rather than men. Now, for the apostles, this is like quite literal in the sense that they had an angel of God like in the prison cell with them a few hours ago saying, now you need to go back to the temple. So it's very direct. And so for good measure, 
In fact, by the way, the, the angel said, go and proclaim this word of life. So for good measure, they do it. You killed God. God raised him up to life. And through this, God is going to forgive his people. For he gives his Holy Spirit to those who, and again that word, obey him. We're up to verse 33. And as he says that, they want to kill him for it. They want to kill the apostles for it. They decide to do that. Now, I want you to notice when they were sent out. Did you, did you notice? Oh, sorry, I'd love it. If you, if you have your Bibles with you, particularly for Acts, this is going to be so good because you're going to see these little interactions. Um, it says they decided that they were going to kill them. Then a bloke named Gamaliel speaks and says, can, I just, can we just go into closed court, for those who know presbytery talk, can we just get all the visitors outside and just have the council here? They decided to kill them while they're still in the room. Not just the Sadducees, the Sadducees and the Pharisees, zealots probably don't mind that, they're, all, they're always up for a good killing. Um, like, like the, the, they decided that in front of them. <laughs> That's confronting. And only then say, no, it's the, it's the, let's be a little bit careful about this bit that they wanted to make sure the apostles didn't hear. So they send them out. Now, you might wonder how Luke knows about this next bit, like what happened afterwards. Um, you know, how, how do we know what the next section of the council said? The apostles weren't there to report it. Well, as if actually, I don't, I don't, we don't know which, but there's actually heaps of sources quite possibly. See, it, it could be Paul. Now, uh, the Apostle Paul, you know, from later in Acts. Now, uh, he was not, as far as we know, a member of the council, but Gamaliel, the guy who's speaking, that's his mentor. Like, he's, his, he's, his, he's Gamaliel's PA, he's his star pupil. So he could have easily been there as a part of the learning experience, we're not sure. Uh, it could be Nicodemus. You remember the bloke who, uh, who went to Jesus at night, uh, covertly at first, but then later on became a follower of Jesus? Yeah, no, he, he, he's, he's a member of the council. Uh, Joseph of Arimathea, the bloke who let Jesus' bones be put in his tomb. He's a member of the council. It could, could have been him. We've got, mul- we got multiple sources that it could have been. And Gamaliel says, we'll just be careful, guys. We've got to be careful here. You see, the, the, test, the test used to be, does the leader survive? If we can kill him, he's not from God. But that's not working this time. The movement's not dying with the leader. So what we've got to do, we've got to wait and see if the movement does die. Because Thutis, it, he, he, it's hard to say, isn't it? Thutis, however you say it, you got, you, when, he, when he messed up, when, when, he, when he died, and his, 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 all, his, all his followers just, it, it, the movement flattened. It, they, just, they, just, they just scattered. No one, no one had anything anymore. They went into hiding. Same with Simon. All, all of these different so-called someones so if these guys are real and legit, well, you won't be able to stop it. If they're not, they'll fail and it's fine. But if you, if you go hard at them, you might be fine to be opposing God. You can almost hear the, uh, you might find yourself on the wrong side of history argument in the background. Now, they like it. They actually like that. They, hear, they say, yeah, that's cool. You can hear the self-interest in it almost. And then they still beat them. 
It's funny, isn't it? Why? Like you think, hold on, if, if you're not willing to risk killing them in case they're God's messengers, but you don't think God will mind if you're like a cheeky little beating on the way out before you release them? Like what? It's what are you thinking? Well, the apostles tell us what they're thinking. It's about, it is in verse 41, it's about honour and dishonour. It's about them suffering shame. the, the, The Sadducees wanted to shame them in front of the people so that they would be held in honour. But the truth is, the lack of honour is on the side of the council. You see, Gamaliel's logic was actually quite good from an expedience point of view. And in fact, you and I might look at it and think, oh, thank goodness he did it. And this guy's at least fine as a reasonable bloke in the, in the, in the assembly. But, but actually, it's not. It's just self-interest, isn't it? Like a better result for the Christians, but it's just expediency. It's just, well, it's just enlightened self-interest. It's not God-honoring. If he wanted to be God-honoring, why didn't he suggest Bible study? Why didn't he suggest listening? to the message of the apostles. Uh, there's, there's a classic case. This is a, if you don't know, if you've never, has anyone ever called you a good Berean? No, I don't know he's been called a good Berean by someone. Oh, some little faint nods. Okay, so you know some Bible nerds if that's you. So being, called, being a good Berean, there's these people from this place in Berea. Um, they are allegedly, uh, these Jews are more noble in character than those in Thessalonica where uh, Paul just got ran out of town and beaten. Um, Sort of seems to be a classic theme in Acts. Uh, And what they did when the word of God came to them is they went back to the previous word of God to see if it was consistent. They didn't straight away believe. They didn't beat the snot out of Paul and run him out of town. They said, well, if this is from God, I want to listen to God on this. And they examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. You see, the high priests could have done that. Gamaliel could have suggested that. But they didn't. Verse 41 and 42. The apostles go home rejoicing. Like, I've, I've had my kids be tough enough to kind of be laughing after I've given them, you know, a little smack on the butt or something like that. But, like, when you get a proper beating and you go home rejoicing when you're really hurting, something must matter to you, right? There's got to be something really powerful in that. Like, it's not that they're just, like, putting on a very for us. It's like, no, they're deep in their guts. They, they have something that... that, that it's, it's like when you score a goal or when you, when you win a competition, they're like, yes! How good was this? And what it was was that they suffered. Not just suffered, no, no. That they suffered disgrace for the name of Jesus. That they were counted worthy of that privilege you see for them the resurrected Christ so much more glorious than anything that a human could offer them that if that for them to be humiliated in front of people that for them to be poorly thought of they were well thought of by the people but that wasn't what they became to worship they didn't mind if they're poorly thought of by the people they just thought this my my Jesus counted me worthy to be one of the ones who suffers for being known as his and they felt so good and they kept on preaching. It's really beautiful. Now, first few verses of chapter 6, we've got another little rumble in the church. A little bit that's not going so great. Um, a little bit of racial tension. The widows who were from Greek-speaking backgrounds are being neglected in the daily distribution of the food. 
Jewish widows taken care of, but these, these ones, they're a minority group, a little bit less, less um, powerful in the community and less of them, and they're not being cared for. So there's a dispute that gets raised. And this is a, this is a threat to, to, to the unity, a disunity, a threat to a distraction from gospel ministry, as the apostles understand it. They say, we don't, we, we don't want to be distracted from preaching of the word and teaching and prayer. So what's the answer? Well, their answer is, we appoint godly people to sort it out. Now, it's sort of funny. The apostles say, we're doing this because it wouldn't be appropriate for us to wait on tables. But I want to just ask a question. Is that exactly what these men were expected to do? Because I want you to notice a couple of things. First one, the food program's already running, isn't it? Like they're not, they're, not, they're not absent a food program and these guys are setting one up. We didn't have that before. We didn't have people just looking out for each other. We, we needed the ex, this sort of extra layer of, of, of admin in order to make sure people didn't fall through the cracks. Not all ministry needs to be formalised. Of course it doesn't. But, but, when, but when there's people being neglected, then we, we, we step in to make sure that doesn't happen. So these guys are just there to make sure that the distribution is fair to the minority racial group who are being disadvantaged. Now, point two to notice, did you notice their names? Notice their names? So, Stephanos. So, you see Stephen. Ah, Stephen, yeah, yeah. Such a, such a white name. Very Christian name, that. His name's Stephanos, right? This bloke would make a fantastic, you know, Suvlaki or something, okay? The name means, means Greek wreath, which you may have seen at the Athens Olympic Games, right? Next, we've got Philip. Um, most famous Philip's probably Alexander the Great's dad, King Philip II of Macedon. Uh, it means lover of horses in Greek. That's Philip there. Um, Prochorus. Prochorus, pro, leader of, first in, Koros. Greek dancing circle. He's the leader of the Greek dancing, right? Uh, then you've got Nick, most Greek name ever. Then you've got uh, Tim, yeah, sorry. Uh, that's, if, for those of you who know the, my big fat Greek wedding, it's a scene from there. Um, and then you've got Timon, who of course is African, but you know, like if, if, you know, like the Greek was the trade language, so an African came to Jerusalem, that's, oh, I don't know about Timon, anyway. Um, so that was just for funny. He's his Greek name as well. Parmenas, um, as we all know, the uh, very traditional Greek food, the chicken parmenas. And uh, then, of course, finally got another Nick, which is thoroughly appropriate as well. You get the point, right? The Greek widows are the ones who are being neglected. And yes, the qualifications that for these men are that they need to be full of wisdom and the Holy Spirit, godly men. But the men that they choose are all Greek. And Luke's writing this for Theophilus, remember, his patron who makes the work possible. And Theophilus is going to read this. He, he, he's going to say, oh, they're all good Greek names. They're the, name, they're the kind of names I know. They're from my culture. And the people from my culture are being looking, looked out for specifically and cared for by godly men. The apostles knew they weren't going to necessarily be able to understand all the ways that the minority might be disadvantaged because they're not from it. So they grabbed some men full of the Holy Spirit who were who could speak out for it and look out and care for them and give them a confidence that they were cared for and mattered within the family. And I think there's a wisdom there. All right. We've got three little bits of application for us and then one bit of application for God. All right? <laughs> Not normal in a sermon, give God some application, but uh, we'll, 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 we'll see how, give it a go and see how it works. First for us, we must obey God rather than men. 
I have no right to put aside the commands of God for someone else's expectations that they might have for me. You have no right to put aside the commands of God for someone else's expectations that they might have for you. But my boss doesn't like me talking about my faith at work. Thankfully, mine does. It's fine. Um, But your boss might not. But is your boss a member of the Holy Trinity? See, mine is, so it's okay. So I can. But if your boss is not a member of the Holy Trinity, you've got to obey God, not men. Like, sure, be smart. Like, do it in a way that means that you can both honour your, honor your earthly boss and treat them with respect and care, as well as at the same time honour God. But there's kind of an ordering in the, in the priorities here, right? And in Australia, it's not that hard to do that either. But don't disobey God just because doing so goes against your place of employment's work policy. God is God and your workplace is not. What is your workplace? It's just a place that you agreed to do a certain thing for and they said, yeah, we'll give you some cash if you do that. That's what it is. They're not your God. Now, look, um, all right, who, who here is good, and you might need to look at the person next to you because you, you know they're the person. Who here is good at reading social signals? Some of you I know are quite good at this, right? Like, like you, can get, you can detect what someone is feeling like from a slight tremor of their hand, like a little flicker of the, the little eye there, or like maybe if you know, there might be a bit of a tremor or a twitch if they're angry, like a slightest dip of their eyebrows and you know they're anxious. You're aware, you can see them, that they feel like that, you can just sense in your spirit they want to move towards the door. Or, or that they're really about to open up, and you're like, ah, oh, if I just push a little bit more, I'll get tears. Or, you know, like, if you, they're anxious and need reassurance. Now, for those of you who are able to detect people's moods, and some of you here are really good at that, you can tell people's wants and expectations. It's a nice, that's a nice superpower for you, by the way. It'll, it'll help in life. But what's also true is that many develop that skill because they kind of need to. Maybe there's someone in your life who you really actually became very important if you didn't know exactly what their needs and moods and what they're about to do was. Because if you can detect people's moods, wants and expectations, then you can meet them. Or you can at least manage them. But you are not responsible to change the moods, wants and expectations of anyone. But you are responsible to obey God. And yet... When you're so good, when, there's, when you've got bombarded with nonverbal messages of what this person wants and this person feels uncomfortable and I should let them go and or whatever these other feelings and needs and shoulds that push themselves on you are because you can just sense them all. Brothers and sisters, for those of you who are sensitive to that stuff, God is there too. He's present with you. He loves you. He is your God. You don't need to do what anybody else wants. It is right for you to obey God and in obeying him to love the people that you're with. But that's all. You must obey God rather than men. Secondly, obedience actually flows from grace. I love the way that God has arranged these events so that they can be arranged this way in the chapters. Because in, in chapter four, three and four, the apostles obey God and they preach despite, despite being told, hey, don't do that again. Then it's the next chapter where God shows his great power and judgment and smiting Ananias and Sapphira and everyone fears them. And then the next chapter, the apostles continue obeying God again, even though they've been told not to. You see, the thing is there, what's beautiful about that is that the apostles' obedience came before They were obeying well before the fear-inducing punishment of sin. 
They were bang from a full heart then, a bang from a full heart afterwards. It wasn't the fear of punishment that produced godliness. Fear of punishment can restrain sin, sure, like it did with Gamaliel and the, the, stopped them from killing them because they're a bit worried what God might do if they did. But it's the grace of God that produces true obedience from the heart. Christians shouldn't be doing things out of expediency. We do them because they're commanded by the God who died for us. It's the love of God for us in the gospel that moves our obedience, as Titus tells us, as the Spirit does his work. It's grace that actually, like grace and forgiveness, it seems like that could signal the end to needing to obey. But actually, no, grace is actually the pathway to obedience. God's loving grace for us. Obedience flows from grace. Thirdly, for us, we need to reorder what we think think matters. These guys were walking away from the prison and they were pumped, having just been beaten to a pulp. They were they to be counted worthy of receiving dishonor for the sake of the name of Christ. They loved it. Now it's going to take a lot of time for me to reorder my priorities to get to quite that point, but I got to start, don't I? Like, like, are you making yourself available to be counted worthy of that particular honour? Are you presenting your time and energy and talents to God, working yourself into life situations where you might be able to suffer disgrace for his name, for speaking well of Jesus, for being associated with his name? Or are you robbing yourself of that by your lifestyle? There's no chance to be counted worthy to, be, to suffer disgrace for the name of Christ. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Who said this? This is Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, of course. Man, what a way those guys walked around. When you walk around in the authority of God. When you can walk away from being dishonored joyfully. uh, When you can obey from a pure, unworried heart because you know so deeply God loves you. And they just, what a, what a way to live. They were, they, they, were, they were unstoppable, weren't they? Don't you want that? I want that. Now, one tiny little thing. I did say there's going to be a point of application for God. Gamaliel said that if this thing is of God, if Jesus truly is the Christ, then it won't stop here. It can't stop here. And Gamaliel was right. If this is not of God, it'll come to nothing. If it's of God, you won't be able to stop it. So here's the test. God, are you behind this? This is, the, this is almost the, the invisible challenge that Gamaliel put out, puts out to God. Which is why it's so fascinating that this is the last word in Acts 28, in the last of the whole book, of the whole two-volume, two-book set. This is the last word, Acts 28, uh, 30 and 31. He proclaimed the kingdom of God. This is Paul, by the way, in Rome. Sure, he's there under house arrest, but basically, look at this. This is, a, this is an all expense. Well, it's not all expenses paid. The apostles still had to give him food. Romans weren't going to do much of that. But, but this is a free charter to get to Rome to preach to the most people that he possibly could have in all the city. With all boldness and without hindrance. Now, that's a single word in Greek. The last word in Greek is a kolutos. A kolutos, sorry, I should say. A, that, you know, the, like, like amoral, without morals, a, no hindrances. There was nothing stopping him. Without, if the God's not in this, you will not be able to stop it. 
And the last word of Acts is that the word of God is going out and nothing was stopping it. Nothing was able to stop the message getting from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to Rome. And as you can see before you now, nothing stopped him from getting his message to you. God did his part. He got his message to you, which is what he wanted to do. It couldn't have been stopped. Thank you, Jesus. Let's thank him together in prayer. Heavenly Father, you are so good. You are so, so uh, in control of the timeline of history. And you didn't have to, and yet you saw fit to include us in your plan, your promises, this new life that you're building. And what a joyful privilege we have. Father, it's, it's, it's tricky. It's tricky to live this out. And we see these examples of the apostles, and we, we, we would dearly love to be like it, and yet it is scary, and we have to face our fears. So, Father, we pray that you would help us to prioritize our, our our obedience well, Father, that we, would, um, that we would obey you rather than men, that we would grab hold of your grace, that would be so, so enjoying your presence and, and speaking to you and communing with you in prayer, that, that your presence would be so in our heart, that your, that your approval would be so our heart beat, that when the time comes, when the opportunity arises, that would put ourselves in places where we might be, you might see fit to count us worthy of being humiliated in front of people in Hobart for the sake of being associated with your name. And Lord, riskily, and I don't know if Lord, how many of us will, will be able to pray this along with me and say amen at the end, but riskily, Lord, we dare to ask you for that to happen so that we might rejoice in it so that we might rejoice in being counted worthy for that privilege. For we do believe in the resurrection when you will bring all things to rights. Please give us that, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.